I ran into uh, Ted Crewell yesterday. Um, nice, nice. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. Wow. I haven't heard that one in a while. Uh, I ran into him, and um, I mentioned the fact that this was our last night without Paul here, and so it's my last chance to just make fun of him without any consequences uh, in my sermon. And I, I told him I thought about just doing an open mic, kind of just like a roast of Paul without him here, because uh, we can get away with it, because this is our last night to get away with it. But um, I, something I really wish, and I have this thought a lot, and I don't think I've ever said it up here, but I really wish everyone here got the honor of preaching at some point in their life. I wish it was something, and this is going to sound weird, but I wish it was something we all had to do. Uh, I really do. I'm now going to move this uh, for people uh, who join us. Um, I don't wish that everyone gets to preach uh, to a screen, but um, I I wish everyone got the chance to preach because sometimes, and especially the way we do it, where you're given a passage, you're given a few passages to preach from, and something beautiful about that is sometimes you get a passage and you're like, I don't want to, I don't want to preach about this. And not just because there's difficult ones, but I'm talking about when you get a passage that you're like, Ugh! like that's too, I, no, I, I genuinely cannot preach about that without changing something in my life. Uh, that's a, a really special experience. And I wish that everyone had that experience, but I do pray that all of us, all of us do have that experience when we read scripture, uh, that we do read it. And I know it's different. We don't all have to go give an account to it to somebody in front of a bunch of people. But I do wish uh, when we, or I hope that when we read scripture that we read it that way, that at times it hits us and we go, uh, I can't read this. I can't believe what I'm reading without changing something in my life. Uh, and that was my experience this week. Um, and I think you'll see why as we continue. Um, But before we jump in for tonight, uh, let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So tonight we uh, continue through Ephesians. Uh, And if you remember a few weeks ago, we started the book of Ephesians uh, with kind of this grand uh, scaled out snapshot of the church on a cosmic level, describing what God is doing in and through the church for the salvation of the world. And the overall theme of this letter that we've been hitting for, I think, the last four, five weeks, uh, the overall theme, as well as the theme of what God's doing in the world, one thing that he's doing in the world is he's bringing people together. Uh, he's bringing the church together in unity in, with his spirit. Uh, he's gathering, gathering people up That's what the church is. And we've heard some remarkable sermons on this theme over the last few weeks. uh, And we've been given some really great imagery. um, From Candy's sermon, uh, where she talked about uh, how bread, this bread recipe that she makes, um, reminds us of the simple yet delicious recipe that God is bringing together to make something beautiful. Uh, We heard Karen Bartlett's story uh, a couple weeks ago. uh, Really amazing, almost uh, confession uh, story of her and the experience with her and her neighbor, and we got this image of uh, the fact that she learned, and I think we learned that we need people uh, we don't want to need. Uh, and she had this experience of needing a neighbor um, that maybe she didn't want to to need. That's something that God's often behind. 
And then last week we heard Tim, uh, Tim, we heard several images, but one was his hilarious hijinks in college. Uh, that was fun for me to picture Tim doing that, by the way. I don't know about for you guys. Um, but that reminded us of the barriers that we often put up uh, between ourselves and others. All of these have been for us images of what God is doing in the church, bringing us together as one body, making us members of one another. Whether we like it or not, and he's doing this for the sake of the world. So in tonight's text that we already heard, Ellie read uh, Ephesians, coming uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, a little bit of 5. Uh, Paul begins in the letter, and he actually began a little bit last week with Tim's sermon as well. He begins to get more specific. Paul, like I said, starts on this, this beautiful, these beautiful descriptions of what the church is, what God's doing, um, bringing together Jew and Gentile. But in chapter 4, Paul starts to get really specific of what that's going to look like day to day on the ground. Um, This is when Paul really starts to tell people what to do. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever had a boss uh, or a manager at a a job where uh, you had meetings and they sat there and talked to you about vision, vision casting, um, or they just talked in the abstract. And if you're like me, sometimes in those meetings you sit there and you're like, can you just tell me what to do? Can you tell me what to do? Like I, that's, that's what I want to fast forward to. Um, oh, wow. I'm not roasting Paul. <laughs> but, um, I actually meant to say it's not Paul, by the way. Um, but I failed to say it, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm not talking about Paul at all. For the record to Facebook Live. Um, I'm really not. But uh, no. Um, I'll roast him later. There's plenty of other things. Uh, no, but this is the part of the letter where Paul begins to do that, uh, Apostle Paul, um, where Paul begins to tell people what to do, how to make this dream of a unified church an actual reality. And it's not going to surprise us in this room, I, I think, to know that that reality, the actual work of this big unified vision, that is not all that sexy. Uh, it's not as easy um, as it sounds in the, in the abstract. Something that these, uh, these words encourage me in, and we're going to read through them again here in a minute. Something that they encourage me in is that uh, these people filling the churches of Ephesus that this letter is being written to in the first century, they're not all that unlike you and me. Uh, I'm a big context person, and so I sometimes err on the side of, okay, that's written for them, for their ears not for, you know, 21st century modern reader. And, I, and, I, that, and that's important to do often. But sometimes it's good for me personally to remember uh, that in the essential things, those people are not unlike you and me at all. Uh, we are born and we grow up and we come from families and some of us make families and we have work, daily work that we do. And we have friendships just like them. Uh, and like them, we found ourselves not just fr- in friendships, but in a community of Christian fellowship. These sound abstract, I know, but these are things that we share with the people hearing the, Paul's words in this letter. And that fellowship was difficult then, just as it is now. One difference, though, between us and them is that we have the luxury or the curse of having plenty of Christian communities uh, in our city to choose from, probably on our street, in our neighborhood. We get plenty of Christian fellowship that we could choose from. Um, Stanley Hauerwas, I have a 
a line. By the way, that picture is totally from Lion King. Um, and I hope some of you spotted it. But um, that will make a little more sense when we dive into the text again. But this quote from Stanley Hauerwas uh, says, The church now exists in a buyer's market. Even more troubling is that the consumer now gets to determine the product. Uh, I think these words will ring true to, to all of us. Um, unlike the first century Christians, we live in a society where we can manufacture our own community. We can manufacture our whole experience of people. It, I mean, this last couple years have taught us that, have solidified that more than ever, probably. We can manufacture our own community. And this, of course, includes... Uh, church. It includes our Christian community, our church experience. And if it becomes too difficult, we, we can leave um, pretty easily and find, find a different one. Uh, Pete, Peter Rollins, in uh, a talk I heard him give once, it's in one of his books, and told this little story, this parable. I don't know if it's his or like an old Irish parable, but I really liked it. And I wanted to do it in his Northern Irish accent, but I can't. Um, But he tells this story, he says, There was once a man who had been shipwrecked on an uninhabited, deserted island, and he lived there for ten years before finally being rescued. Uh, He was rescued by a passing aircraft. And before leaving the island, one of the rescuers asked uh, if he could see where the man had lived for that decade on the deserted island. And so he brought the small group to a clearing, and I have a slide. And this is going to surprise you, but I made the slide myself. Uh, he took the rescuers to this clearing and there's three little huts, three little shelters. And he points to the first and he said, that was my home. I built it when I first moved here all those years ago. And the rescuer asked, well, what's the building beside it? And he said, oh yes, that's my church. I built that so that I could go and worship every week. And he said, what's that building beside that? And the man says, oh, don't bring that up. That's where I used to worship. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, good jokes are when you say, it's funny, afterwards. <laughs> That's how you know what a good joke is. Um, but I think I, this actually comes to mind a lot. This, this story stuck with me because I, I can't remember where I heard it, but it stuck with me because that's just so, it's so such a good image of, of our culture. We can create our church experience. We can manufacture it. Uh, and, of course, as we know, we can, we can leave and go, you know, it's just so easy. But let's read the words of Paul, uh, the Apostle, um, in our reading tonight. It starts at 425, if you have your Bibles. And it will be on the screen as well. He says, So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. The message translation uh, translates that so then at the beginning as, this is what it all adds up to. And I really like that because, like I was saying, this is kind of a transition to the more practical. And I, I like that this is what this all adds up to. Continues, he says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. So anger uh, is, of course, not a, a wrong emotion. Um, if there was any question, Paul here says, Be angry. But as Paul has said, uh, Paul, our pastor, now I'm getting really confused. Paul, our pastor, has said up here a few times, he says that anger is a secondary emotion. And any of us who have gone uh, to therapy may have heard this, this 
as well. Anger is a secondary emotion, meaning that there's always a root source behind our anger. There's always something else behind it. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. But the Apostle Paul's psychological advice here is way ahead of its time. Advice that I have to uh, receive often that this reminds me of is to not have imaginary arguments in my head all the time. Are any of you guys like that? Um, I hope I'm not the only one. Uh, I have these imaginary arguments in my head uh, driving around uh, in the shower, pretty much everywhere except for in front of the person I should be having the argument with. Um, I have these all the time. And I, I don't want to brag, but I'm really good at them. Uh, I'm actually undefeated. Uh, but you might be the same way. Um, your brain works like this. You, there's some anger. And you, instead of going to the person, you just let it grow in your mind. And uh, Paul is speaking to this, this very thing. He tells the Christians in Ephesus that when they find themselves angry at someone, to find the source of their anger and deal with it swiftly. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And he's serious about dealing with it swiftly because he knows that when you stoke the flames of your anger, it leads to sin every time. It will lead to sin sin in some form or another. It makes room for the devil. It creates room or it finds a, a foothold. It makes a foothold for the devil. He goes on to say uh, in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with the seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. I think this, uh, grieve the Holy Spirit, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is a really dramatic phrase uh, that Paul uses. Uh, I feel like my parents just told me, you know, I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. And I'm like, oh, that's so much worse. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Every time God's Spirit uh, is mentioned in the book of Ephesians, every single time it's mentioned, it is mentioned in relation to unifying the church. That's the theme of the letter. Uh, the, The Spirit is always mentioned with doing the work of unifying, of binding us together. So it actually makes a lot of sense um, that these footholds for the devil, these, these, uh, this room for the devil to work and create sin in our lives, it makes sense that that would grieve the Holy Spirit whose job is to unify, to bring together, to make us members of one another. I really like that phrase. And these things that Paul listed off, bitterness, wrath, anger, more anger, wrangling, slander, all of it malice. These are the consequences for creating that room for your anger to grow, for sin to root itself. And this is the nature of sin. Sin begets more sin, begets more sin. We have seen this inner workings of sin uh, on display in our Old Testament readings lately. Uh, Three weeks ago, uh, we read of David's sin, King David's sin, toward Bathsheba, and toward Uriah. And I love that night, if you were here, I love how Jake acknowledged he was leading worship. And I love how he acknowledged after the reading how difficult that passage uh, was to read and was to hear. And I'm, I'll be honest, in some ways it felt more difficult uh, given recent events of just seeing some of this stuff in church cultures uh, and just things like that being brought to light. 
reading that passage of David, in some ways for me, I was, it, it, it hit me even harder. And I love also that Jake, that night, he had us respond kind of to the reading in song uh, and in repentance uh, after that reading with, with words of David's repentance. In that part of David's story, we see the unraveling of sin. David sees Bathsheba on the rooftop, and he has a thought, a sinful thought, a thought that scrapes away uh, the image of God in Bathsheba. And then he acts on it. And in order to cover up that sin, as we know, he covers it up with more sin, with murder, uh, with scraping away the image of God and a man named Uriah, and manipulating his death. Sin begets more sin, begets more sin. This is the nature of sin. Another image for sin that uh, I was given just this week from the Tippins, we were driving, and I have a pretty good long crack in my windshield that covers most of the windshield, and we were talking about how it got that way. And if you've ever been in that spot, you know how it gets that way. It starts really small. It's one little, one rock, and one little, you know, crack, and then undealt with, I don't know who didn't deal with it, but undealt with, it just grows, grows, until it's taking up your whole windshield. And I thought that was a really good image uh, for sin in our lives. If you don't deal with it when it's small, it grows. Last week, we continued in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel, and we heard Nathan, the prophet Nathan, uh, confront David of his sin. Nathan, the prophet Nathan, there's something I really like about this guy, and I don't know if I can put my finger on it. Um, Nathan, in this passage that we read, he's telling the truth in love. Nathan is doing exactly what the Ephesian churches are being told to do from Paul. He's doing that exact thing. And I have always appreciated Nathan's subtle uh, yet subversive manner in which he helps David see his own sin. He helps David arrive at the realization of his own sin. Some people would see that and call Nathan a pretty passive-aggressive prophet. If that's true, then I, unfortunately, have probably lived up to my namesake. But <laughs> I, I really like it, um, the way he, he gets his friend David there. And he is risking something, in, even with the way he's doing it. And I do pray that all of us get these moments uh, to be Nathans to our friends and our family, uh, to help people see their own sin. And even if it's done as subtly and subversively as Nathan, that we would take that risk in our relationships. That's a lot of the point of uh, our reading today. But then after David sees this, Nathan becomes almost his priest. He mediates God's presence. He says after uh, this realization that David has, he kind of gives this, this look at what's about to happen. He's saying that this sin that you've already done is going to continue to unravel. He says, the sword is never going to depart from your house, uh, for you have despised me. And he talks about uh, there being death within the children, his children. But then this happens, and this is just worth noting. David says to Nathan after this, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And I just, I love that phrase, the Lord has put away your sin. That's actually in the confession, in the BCP, if uh, you receive confession, that, that's the thing that is read to you. The Lord has put away your sin. And I think that's a really 
really good phrase uh, for us to use in our language. However, this beautiful moment is not the end of David's sin. What we see next are the consequences of his sin. We see a generational spiral of sin. Uh, one of his sons, Amnon, uh, rapes his, sis, uh, his own sister, Tamar. And then David's son, Absalom, uh, kills Amnon for that. And then Absalom eventually tries to usurp the throne and leads a rebellion against David. And this is where we get to our reading tonight. So we jump through all of what I just said um, from, from Nathan confronting David to years later, we get Absalom, uh, the story that we heard tonight, where Absalom has this rebellion and David asks his people, be easy on Absalom as they're fighting the rebellion. Please be easy on Absalom. And we get this almost comical uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino-esque uh, thing happened to Absalom where his hair gets stuck in the branches as he's riding his horse and it continues on and he's stuck dangling in the tree. I have one, a couple pictures, I think. This one, I have, I'm, I'm going to be honest, it made me laugh. If you look at, if you look at Absalom, he's like, oops. Um, and that's really weird. But if you go to the next one, it's a more serious one. Uh, Absalom is, is dangling there and Joab uh, old war horse Joab uh, finds him with his 10 uh, armor bearers around him and he's completely defenseless he's completely stuck and they all uh, pierce him with arrows and, and kill Absalom and of course then at the end they go back to David they report this news to him and he mourns the loss of Absalom the story ends in blood David feels no victory on this day he feels only sorrow. It echoes what happened to him years before where he actually mourns uh, the death of his other pursuer, Saul. He mourns the death of, of Saul. And now he's, he's mourning the death of a pursuer, but happened to be his own son. I think sometimes evil, sometimes violence, I think always violence, makes it so that even when we win, we all lose. And this is certainly true for David. Even when he wins, he's losing. There's no winner in this story. So can you imagine with me for a second, David standing there on the rooftop looking at Bathsheba. What if he had told the truth to himself? What if he had, for fun, imagine, what if he had been the member of, of an Ephesian church? Could, have he, could he have had a chance at being confronted sooner than he was? Would he have had more accountability? All the violence we see here within the house of Israel may seem foreign to us, but I'm not so sure that it is. I want us to think about this story from 2 Samuel because I think it, sound, it, it serves as an extreme example of what we do today. We disagree with or, or we don't like or we're just angry with one another, our neighbors, maybe our our siblings in Christ, and we go to sleep on that anger. We stoke the flames of that anger. We create room for it to grow in our hearts until it becomes nothing but malice. But we remain, uh, we might remain silent about our anger uh, or outwardly kind to that person and so deceive them and unfortunately also deceive ourselves when we do this. We deceive ourselves. In an article they put out today, um, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman, uh, they're hilarious. Um, they're talking about being a pastor in all these different congregations. And they use phrases like, 
man, in the South, they've made passive aggression an art form uh, and like all these funny little things. But they say this, and it, it rings really true, I think. Uh, Self-deception is contagious. Many congregations are a conspiracy of niceness, a community that lives under a covenant that says, I promise never to tell you the truth about you if you will do the same for me. That really rang true. Uh, it kind of hurt. Again, um, I don't know about you. So we can look at what happens to Absalom, all the violence. It feels absurd, but I, I think in a way, uh, shift a few things around, and I think we would be happy to see our enemy in Absalom's position. And we might be quick to throw a spear, to, to shoot an arrow, if, if given the chance and if given no consequences. Uh, because I think in some ways we are, we are a violent people. Uh, it's at least in our nature somewhere. Humans have a real tendency for violence. And I don't think we should consider ourselves in the 21st century so civilized as to think we don't do violence to one another. We do violence to one another. Our covenant of niceness does not present us, sorry, prevent us uh, from being violent people toward one another. But we here in this room, the church, have something that complicates our violent ways. If you don't think it happens still today, uh, another example, I just finished reading the biography of Eugene Peterson, and in there, some of you who are really familiar with him know in the last uh, couple years of his life, he had this interview uh, that that caught a lot of attention. Um, and the interviewer asked him a question. The question had to do with, uh, would he perform a same-sex marriage for his grandchild? And uh, Eugene gave an answer. And a huge chunk of the church really did violence to him, metaphorically. Uh, his books were pushed out of stores. They were, they were dealt with. And he was all of a sudden, right here at the end of his life, he was done with. Then he, he went and gave more context to his answer. And then another part of the church was done with him completely. Uh, an opposite side of the church. I think both sides were still done with him in some ways. And uh, they, of course, were mad that he changed his answer. That They were, they were all over him. Something that this, this book did that was good for me is I remember when that all happened, uh, what I was angry at was the interviewer. I was like, come on, man, this guy... Cause we now know, uh, just two months after that interview, uh, he was um, diagnosed with dementia. Uh, Eugene was. And so uh, I remember being angry at the interviewer and thinking, why did you, why did you set him up for this um, here at the end of his life? Like, this just feels cruel. And uh, they interviewed this interviewer in this book, and, and he got as much hate mail as everyone. Um, and he actually really not even after the hate meal, he really regretted the whole thing. It was something that surprised him. It was at the end of their phone call interview, and he was surprised and didn't elaborate, and he really wished he had. And he really debated on releasing it or not, but was working through his journalistic integrity and all this. And, and then, of course, you have Eugene himself, the one hanging from the tree, who is confused. He was very confused about what all was happening and um, how to deal with it. And it was a reminder to me that when we do violence to one another, nobody wins. There's no winner. 
So we do this today as well. But we in the church have something that complicates our violent ways. We have found ourselves here in this room, not just because we love each other, which I think we do a pretty good job at. I think we love each other. Uh, But we're also here because of something God is doing. We said this a few weeks ago when we started the book of Ephesians, that the church is not something that we do, but it is something that God is doing. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, I think I have a quote of that. He says, speaking of two Christians with one another, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for both of us. And we've thrown this out a couple times in the last couple months, that because of God's Spirit in us, in the church, it's no longer David and I. It's David, me, and the Holy Spirit. There's something that unifies us. And that thing that unifies us, the Spirit, it complicates things. It complicates when I would like to do violence, when I would like to have malice in my heart toward that person, it complicates all that for us. So let me end by reading the the rest of Paul's words here. In verse 32, he, he says all that, and now he's going into the positive, what we should do. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are violent people sometimes, but luckily for us, peace is a deeper reality than violence. That's another Hauerwas. I'm Hauerwas heavy tonight. Uh, peace is a deeper reality than violence. That's one I chew on a lot because I'm not sure I fully understand it yet. But the, what I do understand, I think is true. Peace is a deeper reality than violence is in our world. And so as Christians, we define our peace. It's not an abstract thing. Ephesians 2.14, we've already covered, says, For he himself, speaking of Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So sometimes growing in Christ will look like returning to the very, very basics for all of us, to Christ himself. To Christ himself. Karl Barth speaks about this often, that the Christian life is never anything We are never anything but beginners. We always go back to Christ, who himself is our peace. And if we start with him, we just might stand a chance at telling the truth to ourselves and to one another and the miracle of forgiving one another when we do so. One of the best ways that we deal with our sin when it's small, before it grows, is through confession. I really pray and hope that we are doing confession more than just the prayer of confession on Saturday nights. It's beautiful, and I think it's awesome when we corporately confess. But I really pray that we are all confessing to one another, to someone in your life, uh, because I have found that that is the most helpful way to deal with the sin when it's the small crack, to not let it grow. We tell the truth to one another.